I want to just refresh us as far as where we have been and uh, read just the first 10 verses in uh, Colossians 2. And um, that way we can kind of be set and you'll understand uh, part of why we we looked uh, back at uh, the uh, Matthew passage. Colossians 2, starting in verse 1. For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. So what I want us to do is is, uh, consider just for a moment uh, last week, we, we talked about uh, several things related to um, uh, uh, the first few verses here where it talks about how we are, our hearts are knit together in love. We're attaining uh, all the riches and f- fullness of assurance of understanding and to the knowledge of the mystery of God. And what we said was this is a progression. We start with loving one another and, and, and that, that encourages us. And then we move on to that, that um, uh, uh, understanding of the basics of who Jesus is, and, and we rest upon that. that. That is something that we have assurance of, understanding who Jesus is. And then we move on to then maturity, which is the, the, the things that God still has in store for us. We never fully gain all that who Jesus is in this life. That's not, that's not possible. I don't know if that's going to be possible when we get to heaven. But the point is, is that there is, there is a, a, a stability, there is a maturity that Paul is encouraging us to, to, uh, to look toward. And then we saw in verse 4 then that he warns about false teachers. And so we're going to begin there uh, in, in, in a very similar way uh, this morning. And so as, as we're looking toward this, what I want us to just remember is Paul wanted them to be mature in both growing and in living out what they knew. Maturity will never be complete until heaven, as we said. The theological term for that is the glorified state, right? We're glorified. Okay? We're not there yet. But it's something, a mature faith is something that is highly desired. Now listen to me. It's also expected. And contrary to what we sometimes think, it is attainable and maintainable in this present life. It is something that Paul desired for every believer. Perfection? No. Faithfulness? Yes. So we begin this morning in a similar way as last week. Last week, we introduced the message with Paul's conflicted soul for those who had never met 
he had never met in Colossae and Laodicea. And they, they were just neighboring cities. I know some of you are kind of jumping into the middle of our study here. That's okay. We're going to work you through this. But we're reviewing from last week. So this week we begin with Paul adding to this sentiment that he is conflicted, that he wants to be with them. Even though he is far from them, Paul explains, as we read, that he is with them in spirit. Um, he's embedded um, in the, embedded in there is a desire to be with them. Now, sometimes when someone says that to you, right, uh, I, I'm with you in spirit, right? That, that sounds kind of hollow, doesn't it? You know, thanks, you know, I've got your back way back here, you know, that's, but that's not really what Paul's saying. He can't be there. He's in prison. He's in prison for the very gospel that he has uh, uh, gave to Epaphras, who then gave to the Colossian church. Okay, so he's saying, I want to be there. I'm conflicted because I know that you're going through some things right now. And so that's why he writes this letter. So we see again, this is a personal letter, even though he never previously met them, except through what he heard from Epaphras. And also he obviously knew Epaphras. So we begin by talking about that first point, rejoicing in the Colossians' faith. He says he's rejoicing in their good order and steadfastness. Um, this, these are actually military terms. Now, I don't want to, you know, we're not going to boot camp here, okay? But I, I want you to understand these terms are directly related to their daily faith in Jesus Christ. And so he's describing what their daily faith, what their daily life in Christ is about, how they are living for Jesus. Good order tells us that they were organized or prepared. This is the outward evidence of their commitment to Christ. It wasn't just some, you know, club they were in or something like that. They, they actually had, had some orderliness to them. They had some organization to them because they wanted to serve Christ effectively. And then steadfast reveals the inner evidence. Their faith in Christ wasn't a response to a passing trend. There was some substance to it, right? It wasn't just this, this you know, some guy went to this city and he heard about Jesus and now he brings it back and, oh, that sounds good and that's just a passing fancy. No, no, this was, Jesus was who they had placed their confidence in. It's who they trusted. It's who they were growing in. They believed him for salvation, which of course is why he came. So this church was organized, functioning well, and standing on its own. We also need to acknowledge that this was a church plant in the very beginning of the church itself. Epaphras, a new convert after being discipled by Paul and his partners, planted several churches in Colossae, being, the one in Colossae being one of them. So think about this. Paul is rejoicing over this. Paul is a frontline church planter who led a man to Christ from a distant village who had never heard about Jesus. I mean, this is what's happening in real time. Paul moved from where they had met, but Epaphras gives Paul wonderful reports of how the Lord had been growing the church. If it were today, Epaphras would be sending Paul pictures of people probably having Bible studies together, church prayer meeting, and maybe even fellowship dinners, right? They didn't have that kind of communication back then. He would probably post a video of new members giving their testimonies and being baptized. Paul was thrilled by what he was hearing. 
So let's be reminded that the only instructions the Colossians had to work with was what Paul had instilled in Epaphras. Again, that's partly why Paul is writing this letter. There was no printed New Testament. There was no local church 101 class. There was no resource people to come alongside of them. So this highlights that they had a genuine faith in Christ and their commitment to living uh, for him was real. As Paul is describing their faith, it indicates that even though there is a false teaching that is threatening them, to this point, the people are standing strong against it. They're trusting Christ. They've heard about this, but they, they're not embracing it all. The Colossians have not been fooled into embracing these lies. So Paul builds upon the strong foundation of what we might call their saving faith to motivate them to, to continue in their living faith. Now just very briefly, what's the difference there? Saving faith is that salvation in Jesus Christ. We place our confidence in what he did for us by dying on the cross for our sins and then rising again from the dead. That's saving faith. But then we have that belief that what Jesus taught us and then what in turn his apostles, his followers taught us, that we have revealed to us from the word of God is how we are to live. And so it's not just I'm going to heaven, but it's now I want to serve him. And so there's that daily living out of what we believe, a daily faith. And so that's what we're talking about. So Paul now in verses 6 and 7 is going to encourage the Colossians in that daily faith. Verse 6 says, as you have received Christ. And verse 7 says, as you have been taught. So that's what he's basing all of this on. The fact that they have received Christ as their Savior and they have been taught about him. We've already seen some of those things. So Paul encouraged them by first having them look back on when they received Christ and what they learned from him. Even the longer title that Paul uses for Jesus is significant. Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ Jesus the Lord puts an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is our Lord, our Master. Christ Jesus, then the article, the Lord. It's a punctuation that who they are following is their master. He is the one who's in control. By, and again, that's based on all those other things that we've already learned. This also answers the question of how they receive Jesus. They receive Jesus as their Lord. Now some of us, for some of us, if we take a look back at our salvation, it's kind of a long look back. I'm not going to name any names, but anyway. But what is the purpose? It's to remember how all that Christ had done for us became a reality at that point we responded in faith to his call. That's what Paul is trying to help them remember. From death to life, from enemy to friend, from stranger to child, from a slave to sin to a servant of righteousness. And on and on we can go. But that is the, the drastic, amazing change that took place in our lives. We were lost. We were dead. And now we're alive because we have placed our confidence in what Jesus has done for us. So as he continues to encourage them, he then tells them to walk or to live in Christ. 
So how are we to live in Christ? And we noted earlier the military flavor that Paul Paul's description of their faith. They were orderly church and they stood firm in their faith. But now Paul shares two metaphors of a tree and a building. He used the word rooted. Let's just think, let's think of that idea of tree. The growth and health of a tree, for example, is dependent on its root system, right? If the roots are poor, the tree is not going to grow properly. If the roots die, the tree is definitely going to die. The more rooted the tree is, the healthier and stronger that it is. The same goes for our relationship in Christ. Our living by faith takes root in our faith in Christ. It is essential that our faith grows roots by increasing our knowledge of Christ and what he has done for us. The better we are rooted in Christ, the stronger our faith. Another way to describe being rooted is having a good foundation. So as we think of this idea of, of who Jesus is, our response to him in faith, the fact that we are now in Christ, he then says we're to walk in Christ. But the first thing is we don't lose fact that we are rooted in Christ. We never um, go beyond the foundation. We never go beyond the roots. Our roots are in Jesus. It's not like we then have some kind of phase and we move past who Jesus is. We're always rooted back in what he has done for us. Okay? Then we move on. Forward is probably a better way of saying it. Jesus had a lesson about foundation in the chapter that we, that we, uh, where he warned us against the false teachers. We read about that. So if you would turn back to, to uh, um, Matthew chapter 7 again, and if, if you don't want to get there, that's fine. But Matthew 7, we read that. And uh, I remember uh, Brother Ed talking about there being a song about that. Many of you in Sunday school remember, you know, the wise man built his house upon the rock, right? The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And one of the favorite lines, of course, is that, you know, the foolish man's house went splat, right? But that's, you know, kids don't realize what they're singing, okay? But, but anyway, the, the lesson here is that this is a very easy thing to understand, People know this. Even children can understand that if you don't have a good foundation, you got a problem, right? And so what does Jesus say here? Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. What Jesus is saying here is, you have to start with the right foundation. And that foundation is hearing and doing. Right? Hearing and doing. Whose house is built on the rock, Christ? Those who hear what Jesus says and those who do what he says. What is implied here is that we trust in who Jesus is. That's the implication. Our trust or faith is then accompanied by action. Now we're going to progress into the building stage. He says, I want you to be rooted, but then he says, I also want you to be built up, right? Built up in Christ. So we start with the roots, we start with the foundation, but then we build upon that solid foundation of our faith. 
I believe a good comparison to this is in Romans chapter 5. If you turn with me there to Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read for you the first five verses. I'd like to note that the first couple of verses are really talking about the foundation that we have, and then it moves on to what we do as a result. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith in this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See that word stand again, right? We talked about steadfastness earlier. Okay, then verse 3, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation or trials produce perseverance. We can also use the word there, endurance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So what I want us to take note of here is in this building up stage, there are two things that take place. There is there is the... Uh, Endurance building, and I believe then there is the character building. Paul is talking about these two aspects, and I think that they're reflective then in what Colossians is talking about. Back in chapter 1, we saw that Paul had been praying that these believers would have patience and endurance. That's one of the things he prayed for them about. We've covered these subjects, but as a reminder, this is living out our faith for the long haul. That's the idea of endurance. Hebrews 12 encourages us to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, folks, I know if you looked at me, you would think, man, he's a runner. You know, he probably runs all the time. Uh, maybe back and forth from the study to the fridge, but, you know, it's, it, it's running, okay? My, my, my point is this. When you see someone who's ready to run a race, it's, it's pretty obvious, right? But they didn't just stretch and then get up in front of the line, and then just, you know, the, the gun goes off and they take off. They had to do some things. They had to develop their endurance. As we increase our spiritual lung capacity, so to speak, our faith has more endurance. And that happens through our trials and experiences that God takes us through. When we go to experience a trial or when God is giving us a lesson of some kind and we kind of, oh, this is hard. You know, I just want to sit down. And I'm not making fun of us, okay, but I'm just saying what we're, we're pretty much saying is I don't want to put in the time that it's going to take to run the race, to run the race effectively. So these, these paces that God takes us through is to give us that wind, that endurance for the long haul. Which brings us to the next, next aspect of being built up, and that's character building. Now, I understand not everyone here is a college football fan. I sometimes feel badly for you ladies in particular who don't like football, because I, I do. Um, but I think that there are some, some similarities to team and church. So maybe for you it's soccer, whatever it is, fill in the blank. There is no doubt that football players need to build up endurance. They are constantly building and maintaining endurance in order to meet the demands of the game, right? We call that practice. Before that, we call it conditioning, both of which I hated. But anyway, 
So as we, as we consider this, one of the things that I've noticed is coaches talking about um, something beyond endurance. And it has this idea of character. And they almost are talking about a, 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 um, a family mindset when they talk about this. They talk about team, not in the sense of just everybody kind of moving toward the same goal. And I don't mean even just scoring a touchdown. I'm talking about, you know, fulfilling the team concept, right? Being together, moving the ball down the field, stopping the other team, all those kind of things, you know, and executing well. But they're actually using terms like, we want our guys to love each other. And I'm like, that's not the football I was involved in. <laughs> it, was, it was like, you know, it, it was bad. Anyway, so it goes beyond this idea of team. They talk about love and they talk about family. Each team member is no longer motivated by what they will do on the field. Instead, they perform to their best because they love their teammates. This is actually, I'm, I'm talking about quotes from multiple coaches. That is what they are now trying to get involved and trying to bring into the game. Now, this is a very basic example of what Paul is encouraging the church to do. We have endurance, right? But then we have character. And what these football players, and, and, and by the way, I, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a different definition. But they want their players to have this kind of character so that they have a better performance on the field. In a, in a somewhat similar manner, that is what the Lord is wanting for us to do. He's wanting for us to develop our character so that our lifestyle reflects Jesus Christ. Paul knew that endurance through life's experiences would lead to a strong spiritual character. Character is who we are on the inside, but it does come out as we live. Paul is encouraging them to build their character in Christ. Then he says he wants them to be established. Okay, so we have rooted, built up, and established. So what Paul is doing here is he's reinforcing his desire for maturity. This is that mature live-in faith we've been talking about. Now, by live-in, I don't mean that there's, there's no activity, right? I'm done. I've arrived. It's all good. Just kick back and, you know, watch the Christian programming. This is not, it's not what I'm talking about. When we're established, we have sunk our roots deep. When we are established, we have a strong endurance and a consistent godly character. Rooted, built up, Right? Now, as you know, Maggie and I, as mentioned earlier, recently moved into a new home. So I want to use that as an example. Our home is well-rooted. The foundation is there, and it's a good one, right? When we walk around, we don't think, oh, our house might cave in, right? It's, 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 it's solid. It's steady. Our home is built up. I have good news for you. When you come over, you will see floors and walls, doors and windows, even a roof, a place to cook, and a bathroom inside, okay? I mean, we got it all. We're now living in our home. We aren't concerned about the rain or the cold. Remember, it's built up, right? We are working on making the inside just right. 
the way we want it. We are, we will never be completely done, right? There's always some kind of maintenance to do, even just a little bit of dusting, right? But we are established. We are established in that home. It has a good foundation. It's built up, and we're living in it, established. There's one more important element that's remaining. We use the word abounding. Now, if you read what that says, it says abounding in it with thanksgiving, right? If, if you have the New King James. The best reading of this section is abounding in or overflowing with thanksgiving. The emphasis is actually on the thanksgiving itself. Our daily faith should constantly be accompanied by an abundance of thanksgiving. Now, folks, this is easy to stand up here behind this large piece of wood with my Bible in front of me and say this. It's really tough to live out. But we cannot forget to be thankful. We cannot forget that we are to express our thankfulness to the Lord in all situations. That's tough. It's easy when something goes what we think of as positive. But if something's negative, it's difficult to just express our thanksgiving, right? That was a wonderful thing you did, Lord, right? But yet at the same time, again, where does the learning take place? Where does the refining, that endurance take place? It takes place in some difficult situations sometimes. Then we move on to verse 8. Happens to be our memory verse for the month that was, it was actually planned. But it's a warning of threats to their faith. We've already studied this verse uh, a couple weeks ago, but I want to connect it back to its immediate context. We will review the verse, then interject some important applications to it, okay? In verse 4, Paul says that we avoid being deceived by persuasive words or slick speech by doing what? By being assured of Christ. Again, that goes back to our foundation. Verse 8 follows the instructions in verses 6 and 7 that we just went over. I really believe this warning includes both our foundation of salvation in Christ and our daily walk of faith with Christ. We can be cheated out of a healthy, mature relationship with our Lord and Savior by being fooled by impressive-sounding words. And folks, don't think that people aren't out there desiring that. All right? And we're even warned that they can come in amongst us. And again, I, I've, I'm being very careful to say this. This isn't cloak and dagger. It's not like, okay, you know, who is it? That's not what we're talking about. It's just simply a fact that there are those who would desire to come from without and begin to teach some things that we don't believe and to lead folks astray by good-sounding words. What we should learn from this is that it isn't enough to simply be growing in our faith. We also need to be watchful against the threats to our faith. But listen to me, folks. If we aren't on a growth path, as Paul is explaining here, then we won't be prepared, be as prepared as we should be to deal with the false teaching. And we almost certainly won't be on the lookout for it. So let me just say that again. If we're not growing... We're not going to be watchful. Now, let's turn this into the positive. If we are growing, 
right? And we are watchful. We are going to be able to withstand some of the arguments that others can provide that want to that they want to give us the the, the the deceitful, foolish things of the world again that we talked about recently. So let's provide a summary here. We're going to include some points from verses one through four just to kind of package this up. God wants us to be assured that what we know and believe in in relation to Jesus Christ for salvation in Christ. He wants us to know it and be assured of it. He wants us to move forward to a consistent, mature relationship with the Lord. We encourage each other to do this by loving one another. We need each other. That's part of the process. That's that's how God has designed the church and why God has brought us together in, in many ways. So how do we develop this consistent life in Christ? We draw confidence from our life in Jesus. That's the rooted part. We build upon that faith resulting in a character that resembles Jesus. That's the built up part, which results in authentic, committed lifestyle in Jesus. And that is the established part. Now, the last thing that Paul does, and again, Paul's a smart dude. He does this on purpose. This is very purposeful. But he reinforces the Colossians' faith. I want us to look at um, uh, verses 9 and 10. Okay, He's just warned them about anyone that could cheat them through philosophy and empty deceit, right? Then in verse 9 it says, For in him, in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Paul summarizes what he has written about Jesus to drive home who Jesus is. In Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, that's that's a mouthful. What it basically means is this. Jesus is God. There isn't anything lacking in him. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We believe three persons, one God. Jesus is not created Jesus is not lacking. Jesus is not, it's not that Jesus had a, a starting point. None of those things. Yes, there was a point when he came to this earth and took on human flesh, but that wasn't when he began, right? We've already studied this. He's the preeminent one. He's always been, he's always existed. We are also complete in Christ if we have placed our confidence in him. There's nothing to add nor is there anything to take away. Now, let that sink in for a minute. There isn't some secret knowledge out there outside of what God has revealed to us from his word that is going to make our spiritual life better or more complete. I'm not saying there aren't study helps or people to explain or something like that, but our source is from the word of God. We don't take something else and lay it alongside of it and say, with now Christ and now you're complete. Right? Christ is the supreme over all spiritual and earthly powers. That's what that last phrase is talking about. It doesn't matter if we can't see the spirit world. Christ is still over that. And he's certainly over the material world. He's over earthly powers that be 
He's over all of it. So here's how I want to conclude today. We made application a few moments ago, so I would like to conclude by setting up what we'll be looking at next week. Paul has dedicated about a quarter of this book to prepare the Colossians to deal with the false teaching they are facing in their community. This, this is a current teaching. It's real. They, they, they live and, and, and work among people who have a philosophy that is different than what they believe. Next week, what I want to do is I want to give an accurate, as accurate of an explanation as I can about the false teaching the Colossians were facing. I was going to be very transparent. Um, there are hints about what it is. They knew what it was. Paul knew what it was. It's not completely, totally fleshed out in the book of Colossians. But we're going to try to, to fill in some of those blanks. One of the biblical principles that I have carefully tried to explain is that along with doctrine, I am to speak about what accords with or appropriately goes with that doctrine. I plan on following the pattern of Jesus, Paul, and James, and others in dealing with some of the contemporary issues of our day. I am convinced that dealing with these issues, just like Paul is doing for the Colossians, is partly what Paul had in mind regarding the practical application of what we know. It also fits with Paul's mandate to warn and protect the sheep. So next week we will explore the false teaching that threatened the church in Colossae, and we will lay beside that false teachings of some contemporary threats, some contemporary things that threaten our walk with Christ. So here's, here's my point in all of that. There will be a period of time where we, we might not be looking explicitly at chapter and verse, chapter and verse. But it is definitely what we are instructed to do. When you think of, of the old of the New Testament, multiple letters that were written, what do we have? We have an accounting of what they were facing. It's an explanation. So now we look at that and say, well, that's scripture, right? But in order for us to kind of deal with what we're dealing with now, we're going to need to bring alongside what are some of the things that, that we're facing? What are some of the philosophies that are out there today? And as I mentioned, again, a couple of weeks ago, the target, the target is primarily our young people. That doesn't mean that we're not susceptible, any of us. But the enemy wants to convince us that there's something out there that we're missing, that Jesus isn't enough, that there's something a little more exciting, uh, uh, something bigger something that we can add to it or, as we talked about, kind of take away. And so we need to be warned. So I just want to let you know in advance, again, there may be a period of time where we're going to be talking more about kind of what's going on out there as opposed to what we're actually bringing from the Scriptures. But we've studied this for weeks. Paul has brought us this far for weeks for the very purpose that we're going to do. Then... We're going to look at the rest of those scriptures and see how he dealt with it. But we're just kind of kind of lay out what, what are some of the threats, okay? Now, one thing that I, I really feel is important to do on occasion, and I, I've done this in the past, is to just be reminded. You know, we, we talk about this foundation. We talk about what we have in Christ and who Jesus is and all these other things. And let, let, me, let me just, you know, be, be really 
clear here, okay? Um, uh, and, and let, me, let me reference Sunday school first. I know that for some of you, you have a different class. For some of you, maybe you couldn't be here this morning. But we talked about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and sharing it with others. And um, Larry said very correctly that um, really most people hear the good news and respond to it by the testimony, by the witness, by the, the proclaiming of the gospel of another individual. And when I say individual, I mean, I mean more like a one-on-one -on -one thing. This is what we call the proclamational gospel, right? I'm proclaiming. I'm standing in front of a larger group of people, and I'm, and I'm speaking forth the good news of Jesus, all right? Um, my point is this. There's a, there's a part in doing this correctly, but we still need to go out and reach the world with what we know and who we believe in. But along with that, it is still important for me to stop sometimes and, and just say, hey, who do we say we believe in? What does that mean? Right? Let me start off by saying this. Apart from Jesus, no one is going to go into heaven. No one's going to be there. Now, I know for some that might sound kind of harsh, but it's fact. Here's another truth. Not one good person goes to heaven. You say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? The scriptures tell us that there is none righteous. Not one. So our own goodness doesn't get us to heaven. It is the goodness, the righteousness, you see the word right in there, that we receive from Jesus and what he did for us that allows us to get to heaven. It isn't anything that we do. We can try all we want. Ephesians tells us that we cannot work our way there. All right? So as I just couch that, it's only through Jesus, and it's not through ourselves. Okay? So then how do we receive Christ? How do we become a follower of Jesus? Okay? Now, I just want to just remind us, Jesus said, if you build your foundation on me, right, on the rock, then you will hear and you will do. So we first have to hear. So what is the message? Turn with me to uh, Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. To me, this is one of the clearest uh, examples of, of the gospel. It's, it's, it's just very tight. Um, there are all kinds of verses that we can go to, but this just spells it out. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. I am declaring to you, I'm telling you what the good news of Jesus Christ is, which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. There's that word stand again, right? There's that foundation. By which also you are saved, you're rescued, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. In other words, if you really didn't believe, there's no hope for you. That's that idea of endurance, of being built up. Okay, so then it goes on. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Paul's not saying, hey, I got a message for you. No. 
Paul's saying, I can only give you what I have. And I received it from someone else. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now that according to the Scriptures is really important. The Old Testament prophesied or foretold exactly what Jesus would do and why he had to do it. Jesus told us why he was here and why he had to die. You with me? All right. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Christ died what we call, you know, fancy word, substitutionary. Simple. He died in your place. He died to take your punishment that you and I rightfully had. This isn't just a bunch of point finger pointing. It comes right back to me. I have nothing in my own life to offer God that is any merit. Even as a child, I was against him. Until Jesus saved me. So he died for us. He died for us in our place to take away the sin, to pay the punishment that we could not do. Not only can we not do good things to enter to heaven, there's no way that we could pay what is an eternal punishment. There's no way. Someone's likened it to this. Two men have two sons, and the one son gets gets caught out in, in a riptide and he's gonna drown and the other son, the other man's son is a really great swimmer. So he runs he runs. He swims out, he brings the other son to shore, right? And and the the, 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 the father of the son who was rescued says, Man, wow, that was wonderful. And, and by the way, I'm sorry I forgot. The other man's son died in the process. But he saved the first son. He saved the one who was drowning. And so the, 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 the other man says, boy, you've given up so much for my son. I, I, I want to make it up to you. I, I want to earn this gift. How's $10? Now, now, we laugh a little bit, and that's by design, but does a million dollars bring that son back? You see what I'm saying? You, you can't pay for that. Particularly when we're talking about God the Son and us. You can't pay for it. It's priceless. But the fabulous news is this. He doesn't require your payment. The fact that he sacrificed for us is the payment. We place our confidence in what he did. So then he goes on. He died for us in our place, and he was buried. Folks, he was dead. He was in the grave for days. But then he rose again. He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And look at what it says after that. And then he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to, this, to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Some, some have died. Okay? 
After that, he was seen by James, then by the apostles. And last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Here's Paul saying, I saw him too. So we have over 500 people, multiple times that Jesus presented himself before he uh, went to heaven, except for Paul, who we came back to, to see, right? But he, they, they saw him. They saw the risen Christ. He's saying, some of these people are still alive. I've talked with them. Now, just very briefly here. Okay, we have just a couple more minutes. I just want, I want to make the case here. We have 12 men who follow Jesus. Minus one, Judas. Follow Jesus to his death. Then they all took off. Right? They, they were, the scriptures are clear. They, 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 were, they were mystified. They, they didn't know what to do. But then Jesus appeared to them. All right? Now, let's just say that all this is made up. I'm not saying it is. But let's just say it is. What would motivate these 12 men and many others who are with them to suddenly say, hey, let's, let's just say that he's alive. Right? Now, I'm not being smart. I'm saying, let's say that he's alive and let's go out and tell everybody that he's alive. And oh, by the way, it's going to cost nearly every one of us our lives. It's going to cost us everything. Does that make any sense? I'm not talking about somebody who was duped a couple generations later. I'm talking about the guys that walked with him every day for years. This is not cooked up, folks. There are many other things that we believe that don't have this many witnesses. Jesus Christ died for us. He was buried and he rose again. And there are witnesses to that fact. The gospel, the good news is just that. Christ came, died in your place, gave his life for you. God the Son, the one that we've been talking about, the supreme ruler over all things, the one who existed before time even began because he started time when he created everything. He's the one who came and gave his life for us freely, totally, completely, paid the price. Do you have any roots? Is there any life in you? I would encourage you today. I would encourage you strongly. Trust Jesus. Place your confidence in what he has done for you. He's alive. And he's going to come back. That's not a threat. That's a promise. That is a glorious hope that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to echo Paul's words. And I haven't arrived. Lord, I think everyone in this room would say the same thing. We, we haven't arrived. We, 
But at the same time, I think sometimes we, we belittle and diminish ourselves. There are folks in this room that have grown and are growing. And maybe we're at a different stage and maybe there are those who are still on that path of maturity. And for some of us, Lord, we can, we can reach maturity, but sometimes we can act really immature in the process. We can take some steps back. But ultimately, Lord, it's, it's about building on who you are and our faith in you and growing up and then being established. Lord, that's what I desire for the folks here. I really think that they desire that. But Heavenly Father, whether it be our relationship with you or our marriages or our obedience to our parents or our um, relationships with our children or any number of things that we can point to, Lord, if, if we're not living according to your standard, I pray that you'll just convict us today. But Father, if we've just looked at and heard the simple good news of Jesus and, and we realize I don't know. I don't know whether or not I'm a follower of Jesus. Lord, I pray that if they know what they need to do, that they'll talk to you. But if they're not quite sure what it means to be your follower, that they'll talk to one of us. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for a Savior. For the God of this universe who loved us so much, God the Father, that you sent your Son to take our sins away. Lord, we can't offend you with what we think we can do. As a matter of fact, we even read in um, we read Jesus' words where people are going to come to you and say, look at these works we've done. Some pretty amazing stuff. And you're going to say, I, I don't know who you are. So Lord, I pray that each person here would really come to understand whether or not they know you. And then if they don't, to respond to you in faith. Lord, those of us who do, I pray that we'll respond in daily faith, living our lives out to glorify you, our Savior and our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.